I'm Pastor Turner. I'm one of the pastors here at Destiny, and I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, as Brody told us just a minute ago, we finished our previous series on my big fat mouth, and in between our next series, which is coming up called The Four, uh, I'm just going to share an, a one-off independent message this morning with you. And uh, But before we get started this morning, I just wanted to first of all just say uh, happy 4th of July, happy Independence Day to everyone here. I hope you have a great, safe week and you enjoy celebrating it. This will be our 242nd Independence Day, an anniversary for us. And I just wanted to take a minute before I jump into my message and get into the service that we could just pray for our nation and give thanks for the freedom that we've been awarded. Uh, This is truly a gift from God and we should not lose sight of that. One of the aspects of of the tenets of this church is that we would find freedom. And we have been graced with freedom in our nation here from God to be able to gather today to, to praise the name of Jesus, to open God's word and to read it without fear and without persecution. And that is a gift from God. And we don't want to lose sight of that. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just take a second and pray and give thanks to God and pray for our leaders and our military as well. So if you would bow your head. Father, we thank you this morning for the wonderful gift of freedom. We thank you, God, that you have preserved freedom in this nation for us. And as many people gather today in churches, Uh, It is because of that freedom that you've given us, Lord. We know that it is from your hand, and so we give thanks to you. And Lord, we pray right now for our nation. We know there are many troubles. We know there are many things that are going on that are disheartening. But Lord, we call on you, the King of all kings, who is sovereign over every nation. And we ask for you to continue to give mercy and grace to our nation, that you would bless our leaders with wisdom We pray for our military that they would be safe and accomplish the missions that are required of them. And God, we ask for your grace to be bestowed upon us, Lord, that you would turn our hearts as a nation back to you, that we would humble ourselves and that you would uh, bring us into greater revelation of your will and who you are in these last days, God, that we would see you in a powerful way in our country. And so we, we just submit and commit our country to you and ask for you to have grace with us, Lord. And we give thanks to you for the freedoms that you've given us, Lord. And I also just pray for the message time. You would help me, Jesus, as I speak. Fill me with your spirit. Bless anyone's heart in here this morning who needs to hear this message. May they have ears to hear. May their hearts be opened. And may they be greatly encouraged by what is spoken today. And may your word accomplish its work in all of our lives, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to be teaching out of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. That is in the Old Testament, and I will be in chapter 4. I'm just going to read one verse, and I'm going to explain a little bit about what's going on. So even if you don't have your Bible, I'm going to help kind of get you into the background and and what's going on with the story of Nehemiah here. Uh, Nehemiah is one of those books in the Bible that are unique, and I'll explain some of those reasons why in just a second. But Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 2, is where I'm going to read this morning. And this is what it says. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their walls? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? 
Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? So let me give you a little bit of background to the story and we'll get back to this verse in just a minute. This is what has happened with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was put into captivity for 70 years due to their own obstinate hearts and rebellion to God. They were warned that this was going to happen and God sent in the Babylonian nation to overtake them and bring them into captivity. They were actually removed from their nation and taken in to become slaves and work in the service of the Babylonian empire. But God had promised that he was going to only allow them to stay in captivity for a certain amount of time and then he was going to bring them back into their nation and restore them as a people. All of this process of bringing them out into captivity and then bringing them back home was all part of the discipline of God's hand on their life. They, he, wanted them to, he wanted to bring them to a place where they had returned away from God to where they would be put in a place where they would turn back to God. And when they turned back to God, then he would give them the opportunity to become what he had designed for them to become. So here we are at the end of that 70-year period, and God raises up a man by the name of Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king. And God allows Nehemiah to get a glimpse of the old place where he used to live in Israel by his own brother. His brother visited the old, town, the old city of Jerusalem, went back into Israel. He came back with a report that it was in shambles, that it was destroyed, that it was just rubble. And it broke Nehemiah's heart because Nehemiah had great love for his home country. He knew that his people needed to be where God wanted them to be. And he realized that they were far off from what God had planned for them. And so what happens is God puts it in Nehemiah's heart to inquire of the king that he could go back, make an assessment of what's going on there, and then possibly even return back to head up what would, what would be the biggest rebuilding project that they had ever known. Before they went into captivity, Hezekiah was the king, and Hezekiah was the king of Israel in that time. And what he had done is he had built up the city, expanded it from when David took over the city of only being about 12 acres to when Solomon took over, he made it about 40 acres, to when Hezekiah becomes king, he expands it to 127 acres, and he builds great walls around it. These walls were probably 16 feet wide, as high as 20 feet high in different places around the city, and they could even ride chariots across the tops of these walls to guard and protect the city. And so when Nehemiah gets back and looks at it, it's nowhere near like that. It's all completely destroyed. The Babylonians had torn the walls down and, and ransacked the city. And so what happens is, is when Nehemiah goes back to see it, he inquires from the king. The king has great favor on him because he knows that he's supposed to do this. And he gives him a bank account, help for the journey, and safety along the way. And even he gives him the opportunity to have contractors help him from Lebanon to bring down lumber and different things of that nature that he would need. And Nehemiah finds himself from becoming a cupbearer to now becoming a project manager. It's a pretty neat story. It's a pretty incredible story. And you would think that surrounding these things would be great celebration and excitement, which there was for many people. But there was also opposition to the building. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4 here. Because what had happened was, is as Nehemiah went to the task of rebuilding the city and rebuilding these walls, he found that very quickly there was opposition from individuals that were important and had power and authority in that region after they had left. In particular, he has this man by the name of Sanballat. 
And Sanballat was joined by another guy named Tobias, and he was also joined by two other armies, the Arabs and the, and the Amorites that were coming through, or the Samaritans. And so what, what was happening was, is when you put the picture, if you could look at it from a map, literally all four sides of the city were being opposed at some level and in some way. And what I want to point out to us is that even though Nehemiah wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a king, many of the stories in the Bible involve one of these three types of, of people. You know, we see these individuals that are, you know, they're, they're just like this powerhouse for God. They're, they're somebody that's like got this amazing anointing. Nehemiah was an everyday guy. He wasn't a king, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest. He was simply an obedient believer in God. And this is why I love the story so much. Because I truly believe that God wants to do more with the ordinary person than he does with those that stand in front of other people as leaders in the church and so forth. Those great people that we think of like Billy Grahams and Mother Teresa and other individuals like that, yes, they are being obedient to what God's called them to do. And that's amazing and it's very important. But there are so many others that God wants to use and he has, the, he has opportunities in front of them. And yet they seem to want to push off that opportunity to someone else that they think is more qualified or more called or more important. And you this morning sitting here are one of those individuals that has that opportunity in front of you. One of the tenets of this church is that we would find purpose. That's what we talk about. We talk about knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose. Discovering purpose. Nehemiah found his purpose in the rebuilding of these walls. And he wasn't some special individual. He was simply a guy who got God's heart for the situation and by faith stepped out to do what God had put in his heart. And this will be the, uh, the pattern of any person who does anything significant for God. They will take what God has deposited into their heart and by faith they will begin to step out in that work and they will notice that God will give them their purpose in that moment. It takes faith to trust God. It takes faith to obey God. It takes trust and, obey and obedience to see the accomplishments of what God has. And whenever we begin to step into that place as a leader, and we're all called to be leaders, by the way, all of us. If you're a parent in here and you have children, you are a leader in your family. If you are simply starting your career and you're a young adult and, and you've just finished school, you are a leader because you have an opportunity to have influence on other people around you. In fact, no one in here this morning is without some sphere of influence that they have. And in, within that sphere of influence, you are a leader. You could be Nehemiah in this story. No matter how great or how small you think it is that the task or the opportunities that God has in front of you, they are important to God. And if they're important to God, then they're important. There is no small thing of God in obedience. Before I jump in, I just want to share this. It's not even in my notes. There was a moment in some of the disciples uh, where Jesus was with the disciples during his ministry time. And he had gone into the city and he wanted to uh, have an opportunity to go into the city and ride on a donkey. 
And some of you guys know this, this is our Passover, this is uh, you know, the, the, the week before Easter, and what happened was, or Palm Sunday, I apologize, Palm Sunday, and what happened was is Jesus sends two of his disciples out and he says, I need you guys to go get a donkey for me and bring it back, and so they go and get this donkey and they bring it back, and he gives them specifics about it. When they bring the donkey back, Jesus rides into town on Palm Sunday, and what happens is, is it's a historic moment because it actually fulfills 700-year prophecy that was mentioned earlier. And so these two disciples who were tasked to do something as menial as go and finding a donkey were actually being used to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy. There are no small tasks for our God by His people. They are all important and they all matter. So don't look at this situation with Nehemiah and say, well, my call, my leadership, my place isn't that important. I'm not a Nehemiah. No, you belong to Jesus if, you, if you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior. And he has a plan for your life, just as Josiah and Brody were saying. And in that plan for your life, you have opportunities that are very important to God. So don't minimize where you might be this morning as important to God. I just wanted to stress that before we move into the real topic of what I want to discuss. When you get into chapter 4, we have what I like to call the ways of opposition. Oftentimes, when you choose to live for God, and anyone who wants to live fully for God should expect some level of opposition, it is simply because there is an enemy to God himself. I said this on Monday night, we were talking about uh, the cup of deliverance in our Monday night young adult service. We're going through the four cups. And I said, you are guilty by association. In other words, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all of the glory that comes with that of salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the promise of His Holy Spirit indwelling you and all of these wonderful things also comes an enemy of God and because you belong to God and you are adopted by God and you're given now the title of a child of God, you are by default now the enemy of that enemy. He hates God and because you belong to God, he hates you and he hates me. And so anyone who chooses to fully live for God should fully expect that in your life you can expect opposition. And some of it can come from just a fallen world we live in. Some of it can come from willful, sinful activity of people that we know. And some of it can be outright opposition from Satan himself against whatever that plan might be. And you are simply collateral damage. I want you to know that. Don't think that you're too highly uh, important. Uh, there's no one in the world other than Jesus who took it directly from Satan in the, in the form of an attack, we are collateral damage in that attack. But nonetheless, we are a target. The Apostle Paul experienced this really clearly when he first became a Christian. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, it says that the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias was the one who approached Paul. Paul had been blinded by God in his salvation experience and and God sends a Gentile named Ananias to him to pray for him. And so the Lord says to this guy, Ananias, he says, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He's speaking of the Apostle Paul. And he goes, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
It's a little bit of a mystery on why we get to experience these things. If I was honest with you, I would say that the minute that I became a Christian, I would have hoped that God would have just plucked me out of this world and put me in a nice safe cocoon until everything was done and we were sitting in eternity. But unfortunately, that is not the experience that God has left for us. Unfortunately, we are going to be living in a world that's fallen and broken and and there is an enemy who's at work and we are going to bear some of that upon ourselves. You may have seasons in your life and some of you may be in a season this morning where things are very difficult, where it just looks impossible. It looks as though you're not going to get out of it. It's very heavy. It's very dark. And maybe you're feeling like, I just want to give up. I want to throw in the towel. This isn't worth it. Listen, I want to just encourage you this morning. There is no other world religion that you can be a part of that's going to tell you from the beginning that when you become a part of this and follow this and jump into this, that there will be hardship, there will be opposition, there will be suffering. Christianity is the only one that does that. Just think about that. If I wanted to start a world religion, would I tell you, hey, guess what? Welcome to the club. Guess what? You get to suffer now. Everyone would be like, no thanks. I'll join the other club. The one where I get the promises and all the good stuff. Listen, the reason why these things are not going to take us down is because when you are saved and you become a Christian, you are plucked from this temporal life and placed into eternity. But you have a transition from here to there and it's called life. But the good news is is that you have waiting for you an eternity of peace and rest and fulfillment and joy that you can't find on this earth. And so it's important for us to not throw in the towel and say, this isn't worth it. I would much rather have both eyes opened and know what's coming at me and then have an idea of what I should do in response to those things. And so my hope is that this morning as we look at some of these things, we'll unpack those things and you can walk away this morning and if you're in a dark valley, if you're in a low place, if you feel as though the enemy is just heaping upon you, you can walk out of here with your head up and your eyes focused on the right thing and have joy in your heart even though in the midst of great concern and and hardship and heartache and pain, you'll find the peace of the Lord that will surpass all of those things. And it's because they are truly temporary. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. They're truly temporary. And God wants to sometimes use these hardships, these difficulties, to extract out of our lives a glory that we would never be able to give him otherwise. In other words, you become the object of God's work. And in that work, it can be painful, but the end result is a beautiful glory that only he could get. So let's look at these for just a minute. What are the ways of oppositions? I've, I've uh, taken these statements of Sam Ballot that he was speaking to Nehemiah. As Nehemiah was working on building the wall, he had all the workers with him. He had families assigned to different roles. And what happened was, is as he was doing that, Sam Ballot approaches and he begins to speak out these discouraging statements to him. And I want to take these discouraging statements are five specific things that Sam Ballot says to Nehemiah and to the people doing the work. And I want to look at each one of those things because if we can take one of those statements and connect them to who we are and what we are in Christ, then I think it will give us a better, a, a better uh, understanding of how to oppose these things. And the first thing that he says is he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? That's what he says. 
And so he's attacking them in a way that I would say it is attacking their identity. The Jewish people as a nation were set apart from every other nation. In fact, the name Israel means one ruled by God. That's what their name truly means, one ruled by God. It used to be Jacob. And Jacob was the name before God changed his name to Israel. Jacob means deceiver. Now, they went from deceiver to then being called one ruled by God. Now, remember a few weeks ago when I taught on on, uh, lying, we found out that Satan is the deceiver. He's the father of all lies. So can you imagine that you've been associated with the deceiver and now he pulls you out and gives you a new name and he says you're going to be one who was ruled by God. Not one who's ruling by your own desires and your own things and doing it your way. You're submitting yourself under and God is going to rule over you. And God pulled them out and said I'm going to make an entire nation where their very name means they are ruled by God. And so he has a purpose, a destiny, he has a plan for them that's very specific. And so when Sambalat attacks them and he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? He's attacking their identity. And sometimes when you're facing opposition in your own personal life, the enemy would love to attack your identity. You see, he would love you to begin to call into question who you are in Christ and what Christ has done in you. He would love for you to question the work of Jesus in you. He would love for you to question, to whom do I belong? Because if he can begin to erode that foundational truth of who you are, he gets an inroad into you beginning to doubt, to question, and to move in faithlessness. And when you begin to move in faithlessness, you will never accomplish the work that can only be done by faith. Do you see he has a strategy there? If he begins to pull away your faith in God, then you will never step out in faith. And to move forward in the Lord, you are going to have to take steps in faith. And steps in faith are scary. We don't know what the outcome is. In fact, the definition that we're given in Hebrews is the substance of things hoped for, the evidences of things unseen. There's an element of living by faith where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So what do you have to do? Is you have to trust in who you belong and the one who has saved you, the one who calls you his child and the one who you call my father. What is his character? What is his role? What is his faithfulness? And this is what happens is if you can get that identity part squared away, now you literally can do whatever it is that God asks of you because you know you're not trusting in you. In fact, check this out. A lot of times in our lives, we begin to uh, get our identity based on who we are in the way that we perform. In other words, if I'm doing well, if I'm, if I'm working and rocking and things are doing well, uh, my identity seems to be propped up and I feel like I'm worth something and that God has value in me. But the minute that we begin to slide or fail or break down or something happens in that nature, what happens is we begin to begin to define ourselves by our failures. And the reality is, is that we're told in the book of Ephesians Because God is so great to us, he says, praise be to God, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. I'll just read it. It says, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose 
us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure to the praise and the glorious grace of God he has freely given us in the one he loves. In other words, he chose you not based on your performance, not based on how good you were, not based on how much you added to that relationship. He chose you before you even had a breath, before the foundations of the world. He chose you. So all of a sudden, my performance is removed from my identity. And so many times we allow our life and the things in our life to begin to define who we are. You are not defined from your successes. You're not. And you are not defined from your failures. Maybe you've really messed up in life. Maybe there's been moments where you truly regret things that you've done and said, the way that you've acted. I want you to know right now, if God has forgiven you, those do not define who you are. You can leave those at the foot of the cross. They do not come back with you and define who you are. You are defined by the truth of God's word. And that is that this, that he chose you before you were born out of his great love. And he displayed it in Jesus Christ, not based on how good you are. None of us can be good enough. Our identity is now in Jesus Christ. And what is it about Jesus? Well, Jesus performed perfectly for God. He never failed. He never sinned. He had the ultimate life that we could never give. And he exchanges it for us. And now when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus. And so those failures, even future failures, are not the things that God will look through as he looks at you. That deserves an amen. Okay? 1 John 3 says, how great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. So he attacks their identity first. Secondly, he says to them, will they restore their walls? That's what Sam Bialet says to him. He says to the, the people of Israel, to Nehemiah, are they going to restore their walls? And number two, and the, the, he's, what he's attacking here is their submission. Because once you know who you belong, once you know that you are a child of God, now you have the opportunity to live for him. And just as any parent and child relationship, you have obedience and you have will. And so the parents have a will and a desire and they want to provide and take care of. And they also have an opportunity for your children to obey, right? How many of us here are parents would love for our children to just obey us all the time, right? Amen, right? I would love all of that. And, I, and I'm sure my mom, if she was here, she'd be raising her hand as well because I'm just as guilty. What he's doing here is he's attacking their submission. And what the enemy would love for us to do is attack our submission to God. He would love to rob us of the willingness to submit to God. He would love to uh, present to us opportunities to move in a wayward fashion off of what God would desire for our lives and into opposition to what God would desire for our lives. He would love for us to take the reins back from him and into our own hands and try and begin and rule, in, in, in rule our own lives in our own ways. The enemy desires to have you paralyzed in your submission to God. 
He tries to send different distractions and discouragements into our lives to cause us to simply stop living by faith. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 7, and 8, he says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion or that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you? In other words, when you begin to obey God, when you begin to step by faith, when you begin to do the work of God and truly live for God, not only will your identity be tested, but also your submission to God will be tested. And this comes in various fashions and forms. Sometimes it's just the lures of the world. Sometimes there's this enchantment of sin that is kind of dangling out in front of us. And it's saying, hey, come and taste of me and see what I can bring to you. I've got something better for you. And the reality is, is that it will always promise and never deliver. In fact, oftentimes what it does deliver on is more hardship, more pain, more sorrow, and more suffering. And his desire is that we would say, stay firmly submitted to what God has asked of us to do. And so what Sambalat was trying to do was cause the people of Israel, those that were tasked with this, this job, to just leave their post, to disobey what was put in front of them, and to, to just leave the work. Listen, a lot of times it feels like it would just be easier to just up and roll. Maybe you're in a bad marriage right now. Maybe there's some difficulty and you're thinking, I'm going to leave. That's the answer. And I want to tell you this morning, that is not the answer. That God has a plan through it. That you need to turn your eyes to Him and not on your situation. That you need to understand that submission to Him is going to bring glory to Him and it will also bring His help. Sometimes cutting and rolling feels like it's the right thing to do, but in reality, it is the worst thing that you could do. So he attacks their identity, and then he attacks their submission. Then the third thing that Sam Ballot says to them is he says, will they offer sacrifices? And this is a direct attack on their devotion to God. So not only was he talking about how he was going to keep them from obeying God or submitting to God and who they were in God, but then he was also going to say, I'm going to attack your devotion. So the very part of your life that is set apart for God, the very part of your life that you are focusing on, that you have given to him, he's going to attack even that part of your life. Come on, let's, we see the needs all around us, don't we? We see the needs for, I mean, we just talked about camp uh, just a minute ago and how we need people to step up and sponsor some of these, these youth that need to be a part of this camp and that we want to be a part. And, and, and sometimes we feel like, well, how much is enough? I've been giving, I've been doing, I've been, and, and God, you know, he never, and I want you to know this, we're not doing this to make you feel guilty. Nothing like that because the good news is, is that God says, whatever I've given you, it's already mine. But if I just ask of you to do it, you have the opportunity to do it, but there is no obligation. Don't give out of compulsion. But my whole point is this, is that sometimes when we're sacrificing to God and we're giving to God, we're going to feel it a little bit. The whole idea of a sacrifice is that you feel it. That's what a sacrifice is. It's giving up of something that you would rather not give up. For some of you this morning when you came in here, it was giving up a sacrifice of praise. 
You didn't feel like praising Jesus. You didn't even really want to hear the music. It was loud. It was dark. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, now it's too warm. Oh, this person's coffee cup is too close. I'm going to kick it. You know, all these things. And all of a sudden, you're in these opportunities to sacrifice to God and, and to praise. And God's saying, all I want you to do is sing out to me this morning. That's all I want you to do. I want you to just confess how beautiful my name is and how great I am and how much I love you. That's all I want you to do. And what we don't realize is that when we give that sacrifice of praise, we are the benefactor. Because what God does is he says, I'm not only going to receive that from you, but I'm going to give back to you something even greater, pressed down, shaken over, overflowing. It's going to be my presence. Sacrifice honors the Lord and what we are is we are the benefactors of it. And so if the enemy can say, hey, quit sacrificing, quit giving up of, quit trying to do, quit helping your neighbor. Have you ever been in that moment where you've been like at the bank or at the DMV? Well, maybe not the DMV. <laughs> That's literally the, I hope you don't work there. Um, I'll move on. There's some places where we get and God's like, hey, I want you to tell that person I want you to start a conversation. You can feel it like kind of bubbling up and you know, oh, this is the Lord. He wants me to say something. He wants me to share. And, and, and then you realize that, man, I've had such a horrible day or I'm in this, or maybe your, your, your identity's at work here and you're thinking, well, I haven't been that great. Why would he want to use me? I don't really have the, I, I really shouldn't talk to somebody. Listen, nobody's perfect vessel. And it, you have an opportunity to exercise a sacrifice to the Lord of something that you desire that you don't really want to do. And what he's going to do is he's going to use it. God always uses the sacrifices of his people. And your devotion to God is a devotion that starts in your heart. But it plays itself out through your life. Listen to what Hebrews thirteen fifteen says. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. The enemy hates it when we prioritize our lives around the mission of God. He hates that we would think that we can live in real devotion to God. He hates it. He hates that the people of Israel in Nehemiah's time in this book were looking at what God had promised them and seeing that they had a part in bringing restoration to what God and fulfillment to what God had promised them. He hates that they were standing and clinging to those promises of God and that their devotion needed to be attacked. Don't let your circumstances rob you of your devotion to the Lord this morning. Give Him a sacrifice of praise. Give Him what He deserves. Give him the love that will only bless you back. Fourth, I'm almost done. This is good. Fourth, he asks them, will they finish in a day? And this is an attack on our current progress. So look at the progression. You become, you become a child of God. Your identity is established. <laughs> and then as you go forth on that, then secondly, he, he attacks your submission to God. And then he attacks 
your sacrifices to God. And then he comes in this other way and he says he wants to attack the progress that you have made. Maybe you've been walking in the Lord for a while. Maybe you've been a believer for a long period of time. And what the enemy would love to do is attack you where you are right now. And so God's got all of us on this journey. And once he rescues us from our sin, he puts us on this path and he walks with us along this path and we're all on this journey and the whole idea of the journey is to bring glory to God through our lives. And so what the enemy would love to do is say, well, you haven't really made it that far. Look at how, how much you've stumbled, how many ways you've blown it. You aren't deserving. He isn't going to use you. And he attacks the progress that you're making. In this story in Nehemiah, what was happening was is they were building these walls and they had to build them back up, you know, 16 feet wide and 20 feet tall and and it was only a few people doing the work and what was happening was is they were even getting mocked by one of these guys. He says, "If a fox came up, it would knock down their wall." That was the mocking that was happening with them. And sometimes we hear in our own ears that whisper of, "You're not anybody." I don't even know if you really belong. Who do you think you are? God can't use you. And the enemy whispers these lies into our minds. We have to reject those things and remember the truth of God. If we begin to look at the size of the work in front of us, we grow weary and we're even tempted to give up. Think about this for a minute. Nobody's life is perfect. We all come to Jesus a complete shipwreck. We are. We are run aground. Our sails are torn. We have no rudder. We are completely helpless. And God says, I'm going to take this thing that's such a mess, and I'm going to put my hands on it, and I'm going to send it out on a journey, and it's going to be an awesome vessel for my purposes. So none of us come to him with anything good. And what happens is, is if he attacks your progress, then he can, he can doubt the work of God in your life. Galatians 6.9 says, let's not grow, get tired in, in doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. If we don't give up, we'll reap a harvest of blessing. Raise your hand if you want a harvest of blessing in your life this morning. Don't give up this morning. Stand on the promises of God. Stand on the truth of Jesus. He is real. He is here this this morning and he is working in your life. Do not throw it away. The work that God's already done to get you in the seat where you're sitting this morning is a major accomplishment. Some of you guys, it was a major victory just to make it through the doors of the church this morning. Amen? I feel that way many times. Look, that's progress. Don't despise that. Don't doubt that. God's working. He's going to finish the work he has begun in you. In fact, Romans tells us that he is faithful to complete the work he has begun. He's faithful. Who is faithful? He is faithful. Is it dependent on you? No. It's all him. It's all his work. It's all his faithfulness. It's all Jesus. Let me close with this last point. He says to them, can they bring those stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are. And this is an attack on our past failures. The enemy loves to bring forth an attack on your failures in the past. He loves to bring up the things that you've 
failed God, that you've let God down, that you've disobeyed God, the things that you've done that are in complete rebellion. He loves to bring them to your attention so that you'll be discouraged and think that this is all about you. But we're promised in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So when we think about our old way of life or the things in the past that want to anchor us back and hold us back from living for God, we have to understand that God has severed those things. He's given you a new life and your past is not the thing that is going to keep you from moving forward. Sam Ballot said, look at these heaps of rubble burned as they are. He spoke specifically on the condition of what their past represented. Those those rubbles were once a, a tall standing wall that fortified and protected, and now they're just a heap of rubble burned, burned stones. And Sam Ballot was looking at, those didn't do what they thought they were going to do. Those walls did not protect them. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And how do you think that moving forward, that your failures in your past are ever going to be separated from who you are? But they are certainly separated because Jesus separates them. And your past has been forgiven. Your past is in the past. And if you live life looking through your rearview mirror, you're just going to have a head-on collision. You can't live that way. And one of the main reasons that the enemy attacks our past is because he he truly knows what the future holds for every believer. The future for us is that we get that eternity. We get the rest from the trials. We get the peace from the tribulations. We get fulfillment from the brokenness. No more tears. No more suffering. And though this life would bring difficulties and opposition, we must keep in mind and insight the eternal perspective that God wants for every believer. I want to close with this verse out of John 16, 33. This is what Jesus told his disciples. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. Jesus said, look, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have pain. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have suffering. These things are going to happen. But these are not the end. I want you to take heart. Because I have overcome the world. The victory that comes is at the end of our life. We just need to keep pushing through with the power of Jesus and the faithfulness of our Savior. And guess what? As you take those steps of faith, He will meet you where you are and He will strengthen you and He will go before you and you just continue to give these situations over to Him and trust in His work in your life and know that that these things are to bring Him glory. And ask God to do that this morning. Ask God to bring glory out of your difficulties. And I want to encourage you that as you do that and you redirect your heart and your eyes to Jesus, you will begin to see some of those things happen given enough time. Amen? Let's pray.